from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, I thought it'd be great to do an entire podcast on Russia's fascination with poison as a weapon. Russia is one of the few countries in the world that assassinates their opponents by poison. I thought we'd explore the most nefarious and ruthless Russian murder plots. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Amy Knight, author of Orders to Kill, The Putin Regime and Political Murder. Amy Knight has done remarkable research and wrote Orders to Kill, the Putin regime and political murder, which I think puts in context why we think that the Russians have this tendency towards killing people and in particular using poison. But Amy, first of all, would you just tell us your background? Why did you decide to investigate this area? Well, I've been a Russia watcher for a long time. I actually used to teach at the college level. I worked for 18 years at the U.S. Library of Congress as a Soviet-slash-Russian affairs analyst this will be my sixth book. I've always followed everything that's been going on in the Kremlin and in Russia. And I also, of course, have been most drawn to the democratic opposition movement. And that first murder that I talk about in my book of Galina Starovoitova, who is a parliamentarian in Russia, she was shot in her apartment entrance in 1998. And I had met Galina and she was with the U.S. Institute of Peace for a year in Washington, and I really admired her so much. And it just struck me that 
there was something going on that, that people weren't as aware of. And at that point, Vladimir Putin was the head of the FSB and very closely connected with St. Petersburg. And I didn't particularly attribute it to Putin, but it was a very strange murder, and it never really has been solved properly. So that got you intrigued with the way in which the Russians police themselves? Yes, I have always had a specialty in the security services. I'd written a book on the KGB, and I was always following what these officials were doing. And then that combined with my interest in Russian critics, journalists, and politicians led me to follow. Every time there was a murderer, I was wondering what happened. And, of course, the Russian independent media has always been very good since the Soviet collapse. So that, combined with interviews, enabled me to kind of follow these different cases. Just as an aside, I noticed that one of the books you wrote was on Berea, Stalin's head of the KGB, who is himself sort of a remarkable case study in brutality. Yes. He is, very much so. I should mention that I also was a historian of the Stalin period, and it just struck me that no one had ever really investigated the history of Laurenti Beria, who was Stalin's henchman kind of from the get-go, and who was a key administrator of the famous purges in the 30s. So I decided I would write a biography of him, and this, I, I should add, was prompted by the fact that Soviet archives opened up in the 90s, for a while. <laughs> and one could really find out a great deal about Beria and Stalin. And I also went to Georgia, to Tbilisi, and worked there, did a little research there. So, yeah, that was my first book. And I think that just continued my interest in the security services and the more sinister aspect of how Russia is ruled. Picking Beria as the starting point, it must have been very eye-opening at times to be in the archives and realize in a mundane way how routine this was, that this was just the way they did things. Yes, you're absolutely right. It did become a routine. But towards the end of Stalin's life, Beria and Molotov and Malenkov and Khrushchev didn't particularly appreciate Stalin's bloodthirstiness, and they were actually, I think, quite pleased when he died. And what followed was a sort of Soviet version of the liberalization, and they stopped the killings. They settled their scores in different ways. But as I remember, part of the way they stopped the killings is they killed Beria. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Sort of getting rid of the second of the, of the great murderers. By the way, have you seen The Day Stalin Died? Yes, of course. Or is it The Death of Stalin? The, the Death of Stalin, the British film, yes. It's excellent, and I would say quite historically accurate. I love the fact that it was able to make it almost humorous. Not everybody caught it, but I laughed. <laughs> I've now watched it, I think, three times, because I thought it was done brilliantly to communicate a level of horror which was more horrifying for being funny. Exactly. I think had they done it purely straight, it would have been deadening. But by doing it the way they did, you really got a sense of just how terrifying the regime was. Exactly. And I should add, by the way, that although, you know, Beria is always sort of the poster person for all of Stalin's terror and violence, 
all of these men contributed to it and went along with it until they worried that it was finally going to hit them, you know. It's fascinating to realize that in the 20s and 30s, Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and others studied Stalin and Lenin as role models. And in fact, Stalin's brief history of the Bolshevik Revolution was a major work that both Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong relied on. And it's a work which teaches the virtue of purges, that if you maintain constant turmoil in the party by every few years having a purge. And I think it's part of what explains what happened with Mao in the 50s and 60s, that in a way he was almost going off the rails the way Stalin had after World War II. Right, exactly. This was timed and true method for keeping the population in subjugation. It's striking how often the Russians, both the Soviets and now the current regime, are willing to be a little sloppy and open in who they're killing, I think because they want to send a signal. I think that they actually think it's to their advantage to have you know what they are doing. But what's your take on that? I'm in agreement with you. I have just been writing a postscript to my latest book because it's coming out in paperback in Britain, and I'm including a postscript about the Skripal poisonings in the UK in March of 2018. And we now know that they were GRU officers who actually put the poison Novichok, which is a nerve agent, on the doorknob of Sergei Skripal. They were sloppy. They allowed themselves to be photographed on the CTV, recorded on the cameras, walking around the streets of Salisbury, where Skripal lived. And they left a perfume-type bottle with the rest of the Novichok in a trash can, which was later picked up by two innocent people, two Brits. Their true names were eventually uncovered. And so we now pretty much have a smoking gun that the Kremlin was directly involved with this. And I don't think the Kremlin particularly cares because people have talked about what would be the motive of Mr. Putin to have such a crime carried out in the U.K. Surely he knew that it was going to cause a huge shockwave in the West and sanctions and diplomats being kicked out. But Putin is not is maybe as rational as we assume he is. And I think he and his colleagues really wanted to send a message to would-be defectors that this could happen to them if they turn to the West. And also, I think it reinforces for Putin this image of him being a strong man who can stand up to the West. And, you know, the Russian public, when Litvinenko was poisoned in Britain in 2006, again, the killers were found. They got themselves back to Russia. They weren't extradited. And they did polls of what the Russian people thought about this murder. And most of them felt that Litvinenko deserved it. I haven't seen any polls about Skripal, but I think Putin was playing to an audience. And so I don't think it really matters all that much to the Kremlin whether or not we know that they were the ones that orchestrated these recent poisonings in Britain. So you mentioned that these were two GRU agents, which, if I remember correctly, is the military intelligence unit. Right. It's the military intelligence branch of the Ministry of Defense. And it's very interesting because, 
in earlier days, it was always the KGB and the KGB successors. Now we have the FSB, the Federal Security Service. They were the ones, along with the Foreign Intelligence Agency, that would do these things abroad. And it wasn't that the GRU also didn't do bad things, but it was more under the purview of foreign intelligence and the FSB. And now it seems like the GRU is carrying out more of these acts of violence. And also, as we know now, the election interference, because it was the GRU that was responsible for a lot of the hacking of our presidential election. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. One of the things I'm always struck with when people try to understand Putin, and this is the one comment you made earlier about whether or not he was rational. Isn't it likely that he is rational within the framework of a Cold War-trained KGB officer who rose to a pretty decent rank and would have regarded levels of violence and brutality that we'd be horrified by as just kind of all in a day's work? I mean, how do you explain the impact of having been a KGB officer and now being president of Russia? Oh, it's huge, because the outlook of the KGB that the West was an enemy. And anything that happened even within the country, like the dissident movement and so forth, rather than looking inward at the causes that might be responsible for some of the dissent, it was always blamed on the West. And 
another part of this sort of KGB philosophy, which has continued on today with Putin and his associates, who are also from the security services, it's this idea that the West is an enemy and also that in order to buttress your regime, you have to be threatening militarily. In other words, there's always this kind of impetus that they have to do something to reassert Russia's predominance abroad. And of course, particularly given that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, they lost a lot of their territory. So there is this almost instinctive need to be forceful and uncompromising. And Putin has inherited this mindset, and he continues, along with most of his ruling clique, are former or current security officials. So in a sense, their very weakness leads them to project a kind of brutal toughness, because they think if they can't keep us off balance and frightened, that our relative advantages would be overwhelming. Exactly. Instead of welcoming Western investment, for example, and treating Western businessmen well in Russia, it's their instinct that even Western businessmen who don't want to get involved in Russian politics and who are very complimentary to Putin, even these people are to be distrusted. I'm hoping that I'm not generalizing too much, but I would say that in a sense they do sort of shoot themselves in the foot because what's happening now in Russia is There's a lot of discontent over the economic decline of the country. And instead of doing things to encourage more investment and improve relations with the West, which would enable Russia to make the changes in their own economy, these men at the top in the Kremlin, including Putin, don't think about that. They think basically about their own bank accounts. There's a book you must be familiar with. It's by the woman who was a Financial Times correspondent in Moscow and became ultimately, I think, the foreign minister in Canada. And, oh, Christian uh, Freeland. Yes. Yes, I know and Christia. A, yes, she's very good. Yeah. Well, she had this wonderful scene in, in this book. She's out one night, having been there for a while, and people getting used to her. And she's out with an oligarch drinking vodka about th- 2 or 3 in the morning. And she's explaining to him in this sort of Western paternalism how sad it is that they wrote their bill to sell the state enterprises so badly that no Western company could compete because it was simply not reliable. And the guy had had enough to drink and knew her well enough. He broke up laughing. This is in her book. And he says, young lady, I personally wrote that bill. And it worked perfectly because the goal was to make sure there was no competition while we were looting the state. I think that captures sort of the dilemma they have in that the immediate core team around Putin measures life by their victories. And if that means it impoverishes the country, as long as their victories are going on, it's fine. Yes, and as long as they can continue with their immense corruption, that's all pretty much they care about. There's a lot of nepotism in the Russian government. They make sure that their children get plum jobs in the Kremlin and in ministries and so on and so forth. And so they share their wealth with their own, but they don't really seem to worry very much about the people. Even from a rational point of view, they should be nervous because 
we have to remember that one of the key causes of the Soviet collapse was economic discontent. And I would say that they're very narrow-minded in their goals and interests. Their analysis would have been that Gorbachev was weak and that he allowed them to crack down appropriately, that the economic discontent would have disappeared out of sheer fear, which had been sort of the model for the last 70 years. Let me ask you, in, in this whole pattern of poisoning people, both inside the country and overseas, to what extent is that an invention under Lenin and Stalin of the Cheka and the Ugpu? And to what extent does it actually go back to the czarist period? I mean, this fascination with poison. Well, I talk about that in my latest book, Orders to Kill. There is a tradition of terror and violence that does go back to the czarist period. I try to make it clear that I don't think it can be attributed to the fact that Russians are more bloodthirsty than other nationalities. I think it related to just the way their political system worked and the experiences of the Mongol invasion in the 13th century. They just tended to solve some of their succession disputes by murder. And, of course, there was no government that could actually call people to account. So, yeah, there was that tradition. And even Stalin, aside from the mass terror that he inflicted on his people, there were also occasionally these covert murders where people like Maxim Gorky would die, or Sergei Kirov, the head of the Leningrad party, who was shot. People would suspect that Stalin was behind it, but they never could prove it, and this kind of sent a message. This is a tradition that goes way back, and I think it's just something that has continued. The Russians work on poison gases at a level which they cheerfully lie about, but which at least one occasion, I believe, in the 1970s, led to devastation of a town because the poison gas factory developed a leak. They have these highly secure, state-controlled laboratories. It's well known that they have this kind of poison lab right in Moscow. But in addition to that, in a city called Saratov, they have a special laboratory that produces some of these poisons. And I believe that's where polonium-210, which was the poison that was administered to Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, that came from that factory. And it's controlled by the security services. No one could possibly get into these places. And the same thing would go for Novichok, which was the poison that almost killed the Skripals. We know that because it's so highly guarded, that no rogue killer could get a hold of these poisons, that in general it, it has to be something that's approved at the top if they are used. In essence, this has to be Putin, because they have direct immediate control over that part of the security system, and nobody else below them would be able to go out and do these kind of things without at least the tacit approval. There would never be a written order, of course, but I always take issue with people who say, well, maybe Putin didn't actually order these killings. He just created a kind of an environment in which they could happen. I don't believe that for a minute. I think when it comes to high-profile killings, starting with, say, Anna Politkovskaya, 
the journalist who was a virulent critic of Putin. She also was gunned down in the stairwell of her apartment, followed on with numerous others, including Boris Nemtsov, who was shot on a bridge just outside the Kremlin. These crimes would not be just orchestrated by people acting on their own initiative without consent and directed ultimately by Mr. Putin. I think the way the system works, there isn't room for kind of a personal initiative in any of these killings. Part of the point is that there's been no pushback If you look at Ukraine, where I think just recently another person was killed in Kiev, if you look at the way they operate, stealing Crimea, then stealing part of eastern Ukraine, then blocking off uh, the Sea of Azov, and then deliberately going after people in Great Britain, which seems to be their favorite country to do that in, the part of the message we're teaching them is that they can get away with it. Yes, and this is a huge dilemma for the West. Because I think that Theresa May reacted very appropriately after the poisonings in Britain. But you have to remember that after Litvinenko was assassinated in 2006, she was Home Secretary then, and she really resisted a full-fledged investigation of that murder. And it wasn't until Litvinenko's widow, Marina, who really persevered and pushed and pushed and pushed, that they finally had an official inquiry in 2015. So they did react at that point very strongly, and I think that Britain is to be admired for how they've stood up to the Russians. Here in the United States, we haven't had nearly as strong a reaction to the huge significance of such killings, particularly when they take place in Western countries like Great Britain. And by the way, the death of Mikhail Lesson in a Washington, D.C. hotel room in 2015, Lesson had been the head of Gazprom Media, and he was really sort of Putin's chief propagandist for a number of years. He was an oligarch and became extremely wealthy He had two children who were living out on the West Coast in the United States, and he came to D.C. We don't know exactly why. Some people said he was going to talk to the FBI and tell them some information that they might have wanted to know. Lesson was found dead in the DuPont Circle Hotel in November 2015, and they ruled the death to be from falls that he had taken when he was drunk. But there are quite a few people who think that that's not the whole story. And particularly Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, has actually gotten some of the medical reports and has openly questioned whether he didn't actually die by accident. I bring up the lesson case only to point out that, yes, these murders have tended to happen in Britain, but it could happen in the United States. The other thing is, of course, is that for the political murders, many of which I mention in my book, which occur within Russia, it's a little bit harder for people in the West to react strongly because they don't have access to all the information. And as we know, 
Mr. Putin and his colleagues control all the investigative organs. So even in the case of Boris Nimsov, where they had a trial and it was covered in the media and so forth, we still don't know a lot because they have control. Russia is not a democracy with a free press. So the only time we in the West can react is when something happens in our own country. And that's why Britain reacted so strongly the last time. And sanctions, by the way, do work. They Maybe they haven't stopped the behavior of Putin and his colleagues, but they certainly have given them pause for thought. And I think that the Russian oligarchs, many of whom live in Britain, have been not very happy about this latest poisoning because it's made it more difficult for them. They come in and out of Britain now, and they're under a lot more scrutiny, and their finances are under more scrutiny. I think the best thing that we can do in the West is to continue with sanctions, continue to call out the Kremlin. Yes, expel diplomats if something happens again. At least make it clear to them that there will be repercussions. Whether or not it will stop the behavior is another question. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Let me ask you one last question, which is, do you think they have a particular kind of poison they prefer, or are they kind of equal opportunity poisoners? Well, you know, polonium-210, 
that was used to kill Alexander Litvinenko in London, that is a very, very dangerous, deadly poison. And that, I think, perhaps Russia learned a lesson in that case, because actually the two killers were careless. Apparently, they had not been properly educated on how dangerous and deadly polonium-210 was, because they actually contaminated themselves. And they ended up having to be in hospital in Russia afterwards. They spread polonium on the plane, in their hotel rooms. As somebody said, like Kensel and Gretel, they just sprinkled crumbs of it all over London. They mishandled it badly. I think that Russia would, if they ever decide to use some substance again, they probably wouldn't pick polonium-210. I'm not an expert on Novichok, but as we know from what can happen just by turning a doorknob, if that poison is on the knob, it can also have unintended consequences. I think they've used Novichok in the past in other cases. There have been stories about it being used earlier, but whatever poison is decided upon, I think that whoever is planning and orchestrating a murder will be very, very cautious because these things can have unintended repercussions. In that sense, if I remember correctly, wasn't it a Bulgarian they killed with an umbrella? Yes, Georgi Markov. They injected something with the tip of the umbrella, right? Right. Now, I'm not sure if they actually found out what that poison was, but the poison was manufactured in the Soviet Union, so they were in on it one little prick of that umbrella, and he died. I have to say, I think the very idea to use one of your phrases, that that we can talk about current trends in Russian assassinations, if you think about it, it tells you a lot about how strange some of this stuff is. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think the one thing maybe to come away with from talking with me and the one thing that my kind of message is that the real problem with what's happening now in Russia and with Mr. Putin's violent anti-democratic rule, is that the Russians didn't have a proper lustration after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They did not rid themselves of former KGB officials and Communist Party officials. I mean, they didn't have a proper reckoning with their past. And so this is why we're seeing what we see today because the tradition is being continued of what went before the Soviet collapse. And until they get rid of the people who are carrying on this tradition of violence, it's never going to stop. Well, I'll tell you a story that sort of illustrates your point. In 1993, I was on a congressional delegation visiting Moscow with Yeltsin as president and great Western hopes for a more open, more democratic Russia. And I visited with the then vice president of Russia, who was a Air Force general. When we were in his major office, it had a room that was probably 45 feet long. And one entire wall was a map of the Soviet Union. And I said to him, being sort of cheerfully ignorant, gosh, that's a map of the Soviet Union. He said, looked at me and he said, yes, and that's what it will look like again. 
Oh, he said that. That's fascinating because Putin has said similar things, that his biggest regret was the Soviet collapse. One other thing that always strikes me whenever I hear Putin being interviewed or listen to his comments, the one thing that Putin and his colleagues and the whole ruling circle in Moscow really hate the most is NATO. (laughs) I think that they must have greeted, as you know, after the Soviet bloc was no longer part of Russia, the Eastern Bloc, these countries joined NATO. This was a tremendous thorn in the side of the people in the Kremlin. They probably have reason to be disquieted about this. That's just something concrete that they really, really detest, which is NATO. If you look at it from the Russian perspective, we have extended NATO to, I think, within 90 miles of the suburbs of St. Petersburg. Right. I think the tension there is going to remain. And it's unfortunate and it's sad, and it would be nice if there was a way to get to sort of one more Russian revolution leading to a genuinely democratic and open Russia, but that we may not see that in our lifetime. Listen, thank you very, very much for taking this time. We are very, very impressed with the number of books you've written, and we wish you luck as you continue down the road of trying to explain Russia to the rest of us. Well, thank you very much, Newt. It was nice talking to you. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pepper. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.